Not only is it deeply fulfilling to make podcasts that bring new perspectives on society to folks, with Anchor, it's incredibly simple. It's a free podcast host with tons of creation tools that help make cut and polished podcasts straight from your phone or computer. Anchor makes podcasting simple. They distribute your work to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other major platform distributors. They come with a built-in advertising system so you can make money without a minimum listenership. It's got everything you need to make a fantastic podcast in one place. So go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. Hello everybody, this is Fitzgerald Pucci and you're listening to Deconstructs. Deconstruct is a podcast series that aims to do a couple of different things, particularly to expose the societal myths that we have learned as a society that are causing us to act against our own interests. Together, we're going to dive deep into each myth we cover with a nuanced, multiple series of takes. We're going to be investigating the historical context of where these myths come from, we're going to be following the money trails of powerful industries involved. We're going to be finding the impacts and ramifications that it has to our ways of life, and we're going to explore multiple perspectives and lenses to get a fresh pair of eyes to make an informed set of decisions for ourselves as to what to do. I am so grateful for the outpouring of support we initially received in episode one. The personal feedback that I got was really incredible. So many thoughts were circulating, minds imagining mental health professionals as immediate dispatch resources, gratitude towards the historical origins and context of police. I want to say how much the podcast appreciates your insights, and that we intend to continue doing exactly what we started. Historical context exposing institutional connections, and giving new lenses and insights to our listeners is exactly what Deconstruct is all about. We received a lot of questions, but there was one that stood out to me particularly. If we defund the police, how are we going to protect ourselves against the violent offenders, the assaulters, the traffickers, and the generally dangerous people to our community? That was, by far, the hardest question to answer. Because of that, I think it's one of the most important questions we can ask ourselves, period. Today's myth that we're going to be breaking down is the police's monopoly on domestic state violence. So a couple of folks went and asked, what do we do afterwards? If we defund the police, who do we have to keep us safe? Aren't the police just about the only group of people that our society has given general unspoken consensus to holster guns in public experience? Police throughout American history have had the standing social legitimacy to carry weapons capable of killing on the person at all times. When we get to the conversation of defunding police, it seems like we strip the only people in our society actually capable of intervening in the presence of violence or danger. Political theorist Max Weber talked extensively in his seminal essay, Politics as a Vocation, 
about the state's predisposition to handle all legitimized instances of justifiable violence. He argued some wild points. That the ability to exercise force was a power so essential to a political body that without it, a governing institution would cease to function as a state. To quote him, Ultimately, one can divine the modern state sociologically only in terms of specific means peculiar to it as to every political association, namely the use of physical force. Weber argues that if no social institutions existed which knew the use of violence, then the concept of the state would be eliminated, and a condition would emerge that would be designated as anarchy. Which is a lot of what we were talking about yesterday as to what happens when we defund the police. Indeed, the historical echoes of Weber's ideologies ring clear as a bell in this moment. With discussions circulating to defund the police, whispers are being made to remove the primary societal institution that we've designated the legitimate use of force to. Indeed, one can argue that the lack of this only body that understands the concept of violence, if removed, would bring our society to fall into a state of anarchy. To quote Weber again, Today, however, we have to say that a state is a human community that successfully claims the monopoly of the legitimate use of physical force within a given territory. Boy, is that a steamy couple of sentences. I remember being shocked, disgusted, and really uncomfortable when I was first hearing this idea. Could a pacifist ever hear such a point-blank valuation of the means of force as a defining power of the state, and not feel weak in the stomach about it? The thought that the state is only capable to enforce its legitimate right to exist through the medium of potential or kinetic violence, man, that was a damn head-scratcher. Why can't we all just get along, I would say. But then I thought more about it. If the state doesn't have the ability to claim its right to violence, something else will take that claim. And, by the same definition, whichever body that usurps the power of potential violence from the state assumes the functioning definition of a state itself. Think it's getting wild yet, folks? Well, buckle up, because it's only gonna get wilder from here. Tonight... Our attention turns once again to the city of Seattle. The headline of the night sounds like something straight out of a Fallout game. After a group of protesters stormed one of the Seattle precinct buildings during the original outbreak of protests in the city, the cops gave the land up, expecting the protesters to act the way the Minneapolis protesters did. They expected the precinct to be torched to the ground. Every officer abandoned this precinct and set up, they even went as far to set up wooden pallets and strategic flammables right around the area in hopes that the expected arson would justify an even deeper wave of brutality in response. But then, something incredible happened. Not a single match was lit. The protesters, instead of torching the precinct, 
took it over as a strategic encampment and used the wooden pallets scattered around the area to begin making sophisticated staggered barriers around a new chunk of territory completely estranged from the notion of police presence as well as everyday life. Thus, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone was created. These strategic barriers created a micro-scale level of borders and encampments, only accessible by foot, around a zone which was able to adopt a body political entirely of its own. Let's explore a little deeper the way that a society practices violence. And, as weird as this sounds, let's talk about the various degrees of humanity a society is able to enact violence. This brings me back more than 15 years into my past. In a personal anecdote, this reminds me of the time I was first exposed to violence. I was perhaps seven years old, at the beginning of a journey through martial arts that would last through the next 10 years. Before I ever learned how to twirl a bow staff and crack it into the skulls of my enemies, before I ever learned to glide through the forms of an elegant crane stance, or even when I learned to throw a correct punch, I was taught a philosophy on the usage of the skills of violence I was being given. My instructors, Sensei Areti and Shihan D'Alessandro, men I will remember until the day that I die, they told me the only way to use my tools was in the instances where self-defense was absolutely necessary. They instilled into me, from such a young age, the dishonor and cruelty that came in practicing the tools of violence outside the boundaries of when it was necessary to protect my safety. I knew what violence looked like. For an entire decade, I was a disciplined student of the art of violence. I had my tenets and codes, and I was intent on practicing the self-control necessary to maintain these expectations. What happens when someone trained with an intimate knowledge and discipline of the means and use of violence takes a look into the nature of a state's ability to govern by it? My career in the martial arts ended far before I ever read Max Weber, but the messages echoing in my mind connect to something colossal in the discussion of today. How do we determine which bodies deserve to utilize the right to practice the potential of violence? The Seattle protesters shocked the precinct and the country when they decided to resist the easy temptation of all-consuming flames. Instead, they did something infinitely more powerful and responsible. They created a community that was completely independent of the rest of the world's laws, free of capitalist doctrine, free of police, free of the culture of hegemony and mistrust so deeply cultivated in the rest of the United States. They used and maintained a restrained, responsible form of potential violence to create something unshakably independent. They formed an anarchist body politic, y'all. Trevor Noah, a couple of days back, made some really powerful commentary 
on our society's unspoken societal contract. He said that we live in a means that has agreed to a vast and unspoken societal contract. We live under the notion that if we adapt to the complex system of norms that we've been conditioned to accept as real, then some semblance of order will be maintained that will allow us to live in peace and balance to a certain extent. Every day in modern America, however, the police of America are demonstrating how keen they are to rip the fabric of that social contract to smithereens. We have been disillusioned, scarred, and broken so many times from the incessant betrayal of the militarized police forces, their love of egregious and unsolicited violence, and their desperate aversion of any and all forms of accountability for their crimes. They wield their violence, endowed to them in ways that would have made my sensei disown and exile me from the dojo in the purest disappointment and frustration. Maybe our system depends on the ability to practice violence in order to exist, but I've learned firsthand what right and wrong and the potential for violence are. And there's a big difference between what I learned in the dojo and what I learned in America. American violence is underhanded, it is strategic, it is sadistic and oppressive to its core. It is almost always the aggressor and almost never the one defending itself. It is unperturbed and sudden with a delight to explode like a sadistic child lashing out with the element of surprise. It is the violence of the plantation owner's whipping hand. It is the violence of the clansman noose and the smallpox blanket that decimated millions of indigenous people. It is the unadulterated slaughter of the buffalo by the millions meant to starve out indigenous populations that America wanted to dominate. It is the violence of mass incarceration of Daniel Pantaleo and Derek Chauvin and the thousands of brutalizers that commit atrocities and get off scot-free because of their badge. It is the violence of the private equity behemoth, stealing mom-and-pop stores and small-town newspapers to gut and pillage for profit. It is the violence of rape culture, the violence of heteropatriarchy, the nuclear family as well as the nuclear bomb. It is the violence of the Seattle Police Department using illegal chemical weapons on its own populace as punishment for the citizens using the First Amendment rights supposedly given to us as birthright from a benevolent god and country. It is lying through its teeth and it is cheating at every possible turn. Something that we need to realize here is that this institution has convinced us that it has the sole right to practice violence in the country. It does not have the sole right to practice violence. The events of the past two weeks have screamed this point to us loud and clear. The state has delegitimized itself. The state police have delegitimized themselves. The military police have delegitimized themselves. And it has created a vacuum for a new kind of state 
to arise. If the people of Seattle were able to practice an ethical violence to capture a precinct and create their own liberated autonomous zone, I see no reason why we should be afraid to give the reins of power through violence to a body that has overcome its oppressor through resilience and patience. I think it's about time we had a change of pace. So how do we tackle that myth that will fall into senseless anarchy if we remove the one entity we've socially authorized to commit violence? We grant a new institution the rights of responsible use that our previous oppressor has proven incapable of handling. The answer is not to remove the weapons wholesale, because according to Weber's logic, the state itself would be removed in the process. We need to give the weapons to enact potential violence and maintain the existence of a state to the people that we trust unequivocally to use them responsibly. That's about all that we have for today on Deconstruct. Again, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for your support and for listening all the way to the end of this episode today. We're setting ourselves up on Spotify, on Pocket Casts, on Anchor, and Apple Podcasts are soon to come, as well as several others like YouTube. If you listen to us and you like what you hear, please give us a follow give us a five-star rating leave a comment to the page of what you like what made you think and what you want to see more of we'll make sure to get it out to you there are so many different things that we can address on this podcast and i'm really excited to get to the heart of some really deep institutional matters with us i wish you peace i wish you joy i wish you safety and health stay cool stay sharp stay beautiful out there. I'm Fitzgerald Pucci, and this is Deconstruct.